This is a very sad day for our country. Within the past 24 hours, we've seen the president of the United States say in his delusional state, we've rounded the curve on this, we've rounded the turn. We, we haven't. We've heard his chief of staff tell us what eyes wide open, as you said, this is a decision. They do not intend to control the virus. Over 225,000 people have lost their lives to a virus. Many of those lives lost in the cruelest way possible, alone. This is probably one of the greatest mass casualty events in the history of our country short of World War II. And we need leadership that is not reckless, but responsible. Hello and welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. It is Tuesday. A new Supreme Court justice hell-bent on annihilating health care and voting rights was sworn in under cover of night at the White House. Her confirmation process has been driven by outsized Republican corruption and hypocrisy and this furtive Halloween-y swearing-in ceremony on the South Lawn, which doubled as a Trump campaign event, was the perfect culmination of all the rancid Republican court trickery of the past four years. Amy Coney Barrett, handmaid in the People of Praise cult, now joins beer enjoyer, Brett Kavanaugh, who was never thoroughly background-checked in spite of evidence of criminal misconduct. And she also joins Clarence Thomas, who needs no reintroduction, creating a motley crew of far-right justices whose lunatic anti-American views now dominate the highest court in the land. Meanwhile, Trump's contagious super-spreader tour is traveling hither and yon across this once-great nation, leaving thick clouds of pathogens wherever he rallies. Ventilators and coffins bring up the rear of his traveling circus. Recent cities that have become hotspots of COVID-19 since Trump swept through town include two cities in Minnesota— Henderson, Nevada, Londonderry, New Hampshire, Swanton, Ohio, Middletown, Pennsylvania, Old Forge, Pennsylvania, and Newport News, Virginia. And finally, if we think a decisive Biden victory will chill any of this out, two academics, Peter Turchin, an evolutionary anthropologist at the University of Connecticut, and Jack Goldstone, a sociologist at George Mason, have created a model of political instability that says the nation will still be a powder keg, even if Biden wins in a landslide. Turchin and Goldstone argue that it's inequality and not one terrible leader that leads to political instability. Especially dangerous, they say, is a system in which elites monopolize all the money, narrow the path to social mobility, and resist taxation for themselves. Looters, tax dodgers, and cheaters undermine institutions and send tempers to boiling. This is what spikes political violence. Now, I'm patient with these explanations that downplay the Trump disaster, but this is Trumpcast, and it's always worth upplaying just so we don't forget. Trump is a plague. Basically, we're a week out from the election, and I don't right now feel afraid, hopeful, angry, or energized. I think I'm in a fugue state. I feel like I'm in the midst of a 36-hour layover in some arid, crumbling airport surrounded by ashtrays and chain smokers, and I'm trying to sleep on my backpack. At least I'm going to vote tomorrow, and maybe things will feel a bit better after that. And also, another day means another chance to send money to Jamie Harrison, and imagine that one day... Lindsey Graham will be defeated. So there's that for positive thinking, too. 
My guest today is Christian Picciolini, a former neo-Nazi skinhead and musician who now works to disengage others from virulent bigotry and hate cults. He's the author of Romantic Violence, White American Youth, and most recently, Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. He also appears on WBEZ's latest podcast, Season 3 of Motive, about the white supremacist movement in America beginning with the Chicago skinheads of the 1980s. Christian, welcome to Trumpcast. It's good to be here, Virginia. Thanks for having me. Even though I am a close student of your recent podcast, Motive, I have to admit it's a little intimidating to talk to you. <laughs> and I'm sure you get this all the time. I mean, you've held unsavory beliefs and you've done unsavory things. I guess I should begin with one of the questions you were asked on Motive, which is, why should we believe your story or why should we believe that you're reformed? I should say this is a question I've asked many times on Trumpcast of even ex-Republicans or ex-Trump trolls or Anthony Scaramucci. So you're not the only one. But yeah, why should we believe in your reform? I, I appreciate that question, Virginia. And I think it's a really, really important question. And I maybe just to give people a little bit of context, give them a little bit of insight into my backstory. In 1987, when I was 14 years old, I was recruited into America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. And I spent eight years of my life as a member, uh, eventually a leader within that movement, and was able to disengage in 1996 when I was just 23 years old. And I've spent, you know, essentially the last 20 plus years of my life trying to you know, not only understand what drew me in, but also dealing with how to disengage from it, but trying to trying to really help other people disengage from it as well. Uh, because when I was getting out after eight years, there was really nobody that I could turn to that would understand how to help me, you know, quote unquote, de-radicalize or disengage from, from a hate group. As to your question, why should people believe me? They shouldn't. They should give me great scrutiny, uh, as they should for anybody who you know has spent a significant part of their life doing something that hurt other people. And they should hold them to account, which is you know what I do when I help people disengage. You know, nobody gets a free pass. I didn't give myself a free pass. Certainly, I've been very engaged in trying to to repair the harm that I caused for eight years of my life, and I've been doing that for over twenty years. But I hold people accountable. It's not just enough to say you're sorry that you're not that person anymore. You have to actively work against it. You have to actively repair the damage because there are victims to this, you know, there were certainly victims to the violence that I caused. There were victims to the propaganda that I created in, in terms of the music that I put out into the world because I was creating racist music. And I have a responsibility now because while, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago when I was involved, this was a fringe problem. It is certainly not a fringe problem anymore. This is a mainstream problem that we're having uh, in our society. So, you know, it wouldn't be enough for me to just to be sorry for what I did and sit silent. You know, it is my mission. It is my passion to really dismantle what I helped create. In this incredibly interesting podcast, I was struck by how one of the recruiting tools, and this, this reminds me of Trumpism, one mm -hmm. of the recruiting tools seems to be, let's see, whoever a young, vulnerable person fell in with between the kind of anti-racist skinheads and the neo-Nazi skinheads, 
they might fall in with one group and then if they were if they were entered into a brawl and they were protected yeah. by the other group, then suddenly they were for the other group. So whoever comes to your rescue, just call them group A and group B, whatever their ideology, then yeah. they're the ones that you owe your allegiance to. And that, like Bingo. leaving out ideology, right? <laughs> leaving out ideology. So the, the sort of the best thing you can do with a new recruit is bring them around so they get beat up by the other side. So then you can tend to their wounds and they can say you were there for me when I was down. And that it seems a little bit how Trumpism works too, right? You've just uncovered the secret of radicalization is it is not as much about find it gravitating towards an ideology as it is about seeking out identity, community, and purpose. Hmm. You know, and, and I call the journey that we take, you know, to find that identity, community, and purpose. The people who've been radicalized that I work with, and myself included, and maybe even Trump supporters, hit what I call potholes along mm. their life's journey, right? Mm -hmm. And potholes can be any of a million different things. For me, it was abandonment. I, you know, I didn't grow up in a racist family. My parents are Italian immigrants who were the victims of prejudice when they came over in the 60s. So racism wasn't something I was raised in. But because they were immigrants, they had to work seven days a week and 15 hours a day. And I didn't see them growing up. So I felt abandoned by my parents. That was my pothole that steered me to the fringes where I found an identity, community, and purpose in a hate group. But potholes can be trauma, can be job loss, can be poverty, can be mental uh, health, it can be privilege. Privilege can be a pothole if it keeps us too separate from humanity, right? Uh, it can steer us to the fringes where these toxic ideologies are rampant. They, you know, they're searching for people with potholes to offer them a sense of identity, community, and purpose. And I think so much of that is, is exactly what happened with Trump supporters. Uh, but I should also say that, you know, not only people can become radicalized on their search for identity, community, and purpose uh, and radicalized by their potholes, but so can a society and a country. Mm. Uh, America is in a desperate search for its identity, community, and purpose. We don't know who we are, or what we're supposed to do, and who our people are anymore. And we've hit so many historical potholes in 400 years that we've never repaired, that they've literally detoured us to the fringes where now all these really toxic ideologies are seeping through and starting to resonate with people who are riddled with these potholes. It's been a, a persistent preoccupation of mine that I, I'm not quite sure what the potholes were just specifically 2008 to 2016 that seemed to have radicalized so many people. If I mean, if you can believe it, about four and a half years ago, I went to a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton spoke. And one, I was pretty sure, you know, Hillary would be the next president. Why wouldn't she be? And second, um, I'd never seen any president. I still never seen any president except Bill Clinton live in person. So I was interested in what he said. And what he said was, I don't think I'm angry enough for this for this election hmm. because he had heard Bernie Sanders and he had heard Donald Trump. And I said, when did all these, I was with him. When did all these people get so angry? What's the problem? And now I, I have a much stronger idea about after doing nothing but this for four <laughs> and a half years. But when did everyone, when in your view, did everyone get so angry that we have a resurgence on the main stage of white supremacist neo-Nazism? I think that that anger started with fear. And I think that that fear started with our first black president being elected yeah. in President Obama. And I think that 
well, there were a lot of things happening, you know, at the same time, middle class was kind of disappearing. So people, you know, who once had, you know, security and, and some, you know, sort of an idea of what their future might be, were now starting to look for people to blame for not having that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having a black president, which was something that, you know, America had never had done before, kind of put these people who were in the middle, like in a position where they were afraid and they were using a black president and blaming that black president for what was happening in their lives. So it was that fear. Now I think what we're dealing with and what's causing the radicalization is uncertainty. And we are in such uncertain times right now that people are starting to latch on to kind of lottery ticket ideologies, you know, kind of betting the farm on on that. Everything's become very black and white. You mean like on QAnon or like charge the cockpit of Flight 93 or, you know, exactly really weigh out kind of cosmologies. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, not very different than, you know, what at 14 years old, I believed in, you know, these kind of conspiracy theories and ideas that were not based in any sort of reality or evidence, you know, we're now starting to ring true because they were starting to explain things that I'd never been able to explain before. So we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with massive unemployment, you know, 225,000 people dead. Uh, we're dealing with an election that is, by the way, coming up on my birthday of November 3rd. November 3rd. People are out of work. I mean, there's so many things happening on top of each other. And on top of it, we have leadership that is not providing a very clear strategy out of the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So this is really kind of a perfect storm for extremism to exist. And I'm very, very concerned about this moment that we're in because things are becoming very emotional, very black and white. There's no nuance or any gray area to work things out. It's adversarial. And so much depends, I think, on what happens on election day to some people. But I'm very concerned about what, you know, whatever the results might be, how that might affect certain people. So tell me about stand down, stand by and stand down. No, stand back and stand by. That's it. The president's words to the Proud Boys at the first debate. We had Nicole Hemmer on here talking about that signaling. But, you know, when you were a skinhead, when you were involved with these groups, I don't think any, I'm trying to think which presidents were, it was mostly Bill Clinton, was not shouting you out from the debate stage or the White House. Yeah, I can tell you I had a bit of a PTSD moment when I heard uh, you know, Trump say that, uh, yeah. when he was speaking to the Proud Boys saying, stand back and stand by. Not because it activated me and, and suddenly you know, I traveled back 30 years to that person I wanted to be and, and wanted to you know, rejoin, but because I knew exactly how every white supremacist in America took that statement. They took it to mean that they were being supported, that they were not being denounced, that they were being told to just be at the ready. And I knew, you know, it wasn't long before they translated those words to mean exactly that, too. I mean, the Proud Boys restructured their logo within, you know, 20 minutes of him saying that to include those words. White supremacists were talking about it. People that I was working, you know, interventions with at the time, I had conversations with them about what it meant. And and they said the same thing, that it felt as if he was telling all white supremacists, not just the Proud Boys, not just a couple of hundred or, or maybe a thousand people, you know, he was telling every single white supremacist that he had their back. And it was a a very scary moment because they took it, they certainly took it that way. This isn't just an interpretation of mine or anybody else's. They were very adamant about, you know, accepting those words as, as truth. 
I remember Andrew Gillum at some point said, um, I'm not saying you're a racist. I'm just saying the racists think you're a racist. And I think that's a nice test since we always wonder, you know, since the question of who who is or isn't a racism or if it's so systemic that we can't, you know, none of us are exempt. I mean, whatever the, the actual facts of it, it does seem like the Proud Boys get to decide if Trump is a Proud Boy or an, is an ally to them. And, and they do seem to have made that decision. So tell me about how a moment like that goes down, though. Say with one of the people you're working to disengage and, and de-radicalize. Does that person go back and watch the debate and see that happen and is on his phone with a friend, with friends in it, and they're saying whatever, some kind of code word about this is amazing, or they send a bunch of like happy power emojis or swastikas to each other when it happens. And then someone starts printing the t-shirts. I just want to <laughs> know about the network. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because it probably is that sophisticated and that corny okay. too. Uh, you know, it operates much like we would think things operate in our circles, right? You know, when something happens in the news, we're talking about it on Facebook. We're talking about it on social media. We're texting our, you know, our closest friends and, and, you know, it happened the same way for them. Most of them, you know, are having these conversations on, you know, encrypted chat networks, places like, you know, uh, Discord or Telegram or even on their, so- their own social networks uh, that they've created. And I won't even give the names of those, but like they've created their own social networks where they have the same conversations that we might have, you know, places like Twitter or Facebook, you know, places that they've been deplatformed. And I've seen some of these conversations because unfortunately they leak or fortunately they leak. Uh, but, you know, they were kind of, it was like a pep rally to them. Uh, Mm -hmm. They saw it as kind of a, you know, a slap on the back. You know, they were very excited. They think it's their moment. And they, because of that, amp up their rhetoric. They amp up their propaganda. They amp up their efforts to intimidate people. And in fact, we've seen that. We've seen just in the last couple of days when Trump didn't call out the Proud Boys specifically, but called out Philadelphia and poll watchers, where we saw Proud Boys assemble in Philadelphia, you know, to, to go stand outside of polling places to, you know, intimidate. So yeah. th- these words matter. They have a lot of impact, uh, you know, after being served up once again, with a softball question to denounce white supremacy, he didn't do it clearly because he did, he refused to do it again. You know, even though he, I think, since then has said yes, I denounce white supremacy, he hasn't really done it with much substance, and and has suddenly shifted it to you know antifa or left wing you know activists and things like that. So it's still it's still something that he has not put his foot down and, and called them out on specifically. Let's talk about Antifa for a second, because, you know, it has its own origins. I was actually surprised to learn that there were what your podcast calls anti-racist skinheads Mm -hmm. at the same time that you were around Chicago holding the flag for the other side. Very fine people on both sides, as we know. (laughs) But what was the birth of something like Antifa like in the United States? Because we've had Mark Bray on, who's talked about its origins in Europe, but I, I don't totally understand that side of the skinheads sure yeah so back in in the 80s and 90s um, and even back in you know in the early 80s and late 70s skinheads didn't start out from racism they actually were a product of the jamaican rude boy culture and ska culture and were very rooted in, in black culture so the original skinheads from england were not racist they were you know there were black skinheads there were latinos there were all sorts of skinheads and then racism crept in and co-opted it just like you know racism tends to do in a lot of situations 
they feel something that that is essentially good and, and they transform uh, hence things like the swastika had its origins and something that wasn't bad um anyway so they you know nazis came in and, and co-opted skinheads so what we're seeing today with uh with antifa which is short for anti-fascist action uh, which is a collective of people it's not you know an organization per se you know you don't join antifa they don't have like a leader uh, they're a very loose collective of activists who are anti-fascists and they're not dissimilar to the anti-racist skinheads that in the 80s and 90s i would have fought against or that protested against us they believed in you know in, in looking like a skinhead and listening to non-racist skinhead music and other types of music that was around but they were you know very fervently anti-racist and were against us while the antifa folks today and i've been corrected many times it's not antifa it's antifa uh, is they're not made up of skinheads but they are made up of anti-racist activists that come from all stripes some of which may be old anti-racist skinheads some are you know punk rockers some are, are mothers uh, and grandmothers uh, some are you know clergy members and, and there are people who really just vow to fight against anti-fascism. The way they've been painted somewhat wrongly in the media and certainly wrongly by the president and the administration is that they are this kind of extremist group who you know wants to bring down government. And that's just simply not true. Their goal is, is you know, from what I understand from those who you know, are part of this movement that I've met, and I've seen it with my own eyes, is that they really are there to just make sure that Nazis, fascists, and white supremacists are not harm other people. That seems right from what I understand, too. I also understand that, at least in Europe, they consider themselves expressly an illiberal movement, so mm. they, where it comes to fascist speech. And that's why they sit so uncomfortably in America, because shutting down a Nazi rally, making it so, you know, white power music can't be played, Inter even hacking a kind of, you know, some kind of communication site are all appropriate Antifa or Antifa actions. Right. Where in the U.S., we have the First Amendment standing in the way of some of that. So, I mean, I think that's where things get sort of interesting, but also where you start to hear bad faith First Amendment cases against them. But I guess what you're saying is that as someone who works to disengage members of hate groups, you're not working with a lot of Antifa types. No, I'm, I'm not. In fact, I'm not working with any. Uh, although there, there have been some former you know, anti-hate activists who've become white nationalists, and I've worked with them. And I call those kinds of people cult hoppers. They're just literally jumping from one identity, community, and purpose to another because yes. they're searching for that. I think that in your in motive, uh, isn't there, there's one figure um, also in the Midwest who has decided that it's coming up badly in his Google searches because he was doxxed as a neo-Nazi. And so he's now decided that it's hurt his chances at maybe a girlfriend or a job. So he's decided to change cults. Is yeah. it, do I have this right? Who would have thought that being a Nazi and, and being a white nationalist would hurt his chances to find a girlfriend and a job? I mean, right. And that, that and also that it would become counteradaptive in an animal way, that you would yeah. change your mind when you sort of were out of options, out of money, you know, out of, uh, out of love in your life. And then you might think about believing something else. Totally. Yeah. Now some people do that. They, they, they'll jump from one thing to another. When they hit a wall there, they don't get the reward from that. They're not 
they're not searching for positive communities. They're just kind of hopping from one reward to another. And, and I've seen people do that who, you know, were white nationalists and have become, you know, ISIS sympathizers. And then they go from that and they join some super religious Christian, you know, uh, group. And then from that, they get involved in drug culture and they get really deep into that. And they're literally just hopping from one cult atmosphere to another um, and because they're searching for identity, community, and purpose, which tells me it's less about the ideology that's important and more about the reward from those three things. It, you know, in the podcast that, that I did with WBZ, um, the person you're talking about is Brendan. Uh, and he actually yes. was doxxed. He was, somebody found out he you know lost his job where he was getting paid six figures. And then his mother had actually reached out to me. Uh, he didn't want to work with me initially. Uh, and it wasn't until he started hitting walls and in, in his you know future job search and in, in his life that he said, well, maybe I need to start looking at things differently. And I'd characterize it a little bit differently. I do think he is doing the work. He is trying to repair the damage. He's working with other, you know, providers that I've set him up with. He's boxing in a gym that's predominantly, you know, African American and, and Latino. So I've put him in situations that are challenging and he's doing quite well, actually. He still hasn't found a job, still hasn't found a girlfriend, and I think he's gonna have a hard road there because but he's gonna have to work on himself first and he's doing a pretty good job of doing that well okay that's good to hear but i think also odette youssef the host there pointed out that is it okay i have some hard time because i think there are three different figures on the podcast we called brendan brennan or brandon yeah. something like that but one of them ends up switching out of a kind of neo-nazi group to doing black lives matter work yeah and is just as enchanted or not enchanted, just as persuaded by the idea that there's systemic racism as he was persuaded by the idea that there was like a, you know, deep state cabal trying to, <laughs> you know, take over the world with Jewish banks or whatever. Mm. And um, I think Odette Youssef points out that it may be the same frame of mind that kind of likes not, I mean, some version of conspiracy thinking, but that likes to see it, the thing, either a deep state or another kind of a, the banks or another kind of conspiracy that's made one's own life more difficult and also the life of one's tribe more difficult and gives you purpose to fight that magic thing. And I think it's because that person doesn't want to think that they were easily fooled. So they must except that some really out of the box, extraordinary thing is happening that, that is, that they can blame, right? It's not just their life. It's not the fact that, you know, they've stumbled. It's not the fact that, you know, maybe they live in a community that doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity, or maybe it's, you know, the fact that their, you know, their wife left them and, and suddenly now they want to blame some sort of conspiracy, some sort of secret cabal for creating this because in their lives, it's impossible to accept that normal circumstances could fool them or that could trip yes. them up. Nobody wants to accept that, right? It's Nobody to wants accept. to accept that. I know I definitely don't. The sort of the day before that people I know have gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the, like the two days before, it's that everyone is coming after them and they're all very complicated things happening in their lives. And then, the, you know, on that morning they decide, or maybe it's just that I drink too much. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's, it's just horrible to acknowledge the truth that, you know, you've fallen into one of the banal potholes as you say, when you could be, you know, some kind of Mission Impossible figure pursued by all sides by dark forces. So since you were involved with these groups in the 80s and 90s, do you think it's changed? I know one of the transitions that you were present for, and then we can talk about boots to suits, but that was really interesting to me is 
you would have chosen to fly a Nazi flag or use kind of C. Kyle vocabulary, but that wasn't um, palatable enough, or at least you learned that it that it was would be better. You could make the same point with a Confederate flag, but you'd have the cover that this was just a heritage thing about the South. I mean, you're an Italian American from the Midwest. From you have probably had no kinship with the Confederacy, but you knew that that flag would land better than the Nazi flag. What are some other things like that where neo-Nazism or where the far right has kind of shape-shifted so it in- lands where it is now? Yeah, I mean, being, you know, an Italian kid, uh, you know, Italian-American kid from the south side of Chicago, there was a lot of racism in Chicago. I mean, coming from the most segregated city in, in the country still, you know, there was a lot of racism, but there there wasn't a lot of Nazism. Let me just say that, right? You know, there we, we were neo-Nazis, but the whole idea of being a Nazi was very unpalatable to even the average American white racist. Their grandfathers had fought in World War II. They remembered the stories of the Nazis and things like that, even though they believed, you know, many of the same things, not politically speaking, but racially speaking, that we did. They didn't want to live, you know, in a neighborhood next to a black family, or they didn't, you know, Chicago was just like that. It was ingrained like that. So we knew that we needed to change things up. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking, you know, responsibility for this. There were other people who were leading these efforts, people like David Duke, who, you know, dropped the Klan robe and started putting on a three-piece suit of a politician and then was elected to the, you know, to the House of Representatives in Louisiana, where he served. So they started to recognize that one, law enforcement was starting to infiltrate and we couldn't have that. So it, it moved away from the group structure. And people were encouraged to more be to be more like lone wolves on their own. And I don't want to use the term lone wolf to give people the impression that you know people were programmed to like go commit acts of terror. That was part of our culture and it was part of our ideology. But lone wolves meaning that they just said, don't join a group. We can still hang out, but we don't have to be members of the clan to do that. We don't have to wear hoods to do that. Or you don't have to shave your head or be a skinhead to do that. We can look like the average American white racists, we can move to their neighborhoods, we can get jobs where they where they work, we can go into places like law enforcement, get jobs there and prison system, uh, we can go into the military to get training. So those are the things that were encouraged in the 80s and 90s. Uh, one, to escape, you know, kind of law enforcement, but two, it was a strategy to spread the message more widely, because we knew that a swastika wasn't working. Um, so we started to remove that stuff from our propaganda, from our literature, and it was more about the American flag and about the Confederate flag and things that we knew. I mean, because even in the North, you know, we called it the rebel flag. It was just yeah. kind of associated with being a rebel and kind of doing your own thing. And yes, the racism too. Uh, but Northerners, you know, would fly it. The, you know, people would have it as their license plate and, you know, you'd see the flag from time to time. So it was something that people had already kind of, you know, associated with. So it was a natural turn to that. And every movement needs a symbol, needs an emblem. So, you know, we started to experiment with different things. And one of them was the Confederate flag. Yeah, the symbolism is super interesting because, I mean, again, I recommend to all listeners WBEZ's Motive, which you were a consultant on, or more than that, a producer. Yeah, season three. So there are three seasons, and season three was the one specifically that I was a consultant on. Okay, got it. I had missed the other seasons. Yes, this is season three, and Odette Youssef is the main host. I was really struck by how much attention is paid in the groups you were part of and cult life generally to 
accoutrements and clothes and how you comport yourself and how you cut your hair. I don't know if you've seen, um, as I have, Vow on HBO, The Vow, the series about Nexium. Just finished watching it last night, actually. Season Did one. you? Okay, <laughs> so of course, <laughs> we probably both want to process all of it. Yeah. But, you know, there a lot is made in it of the kind of um, shawls or scarves or something that you get at certain layers of enla- levels of enlightenment. There are different colors, like karate yeah. belts and just certain other ways. Oh, there's, oh the yeah, branding. that's right. Does the, oh, and of course the branding, right? right. Exactly. The like yeah. actual seared initials of the founder on your um, groin. And then there's, is Keith Ranieri in the propaganda video going to have his hair long or short? They have to reshoot all kinds of things with his hair short because right. it somehow makes him more respectable and less culty. Yep. Um, and there are all kinds of other things. And you describe putting on, I think putting on the boots, getting the haircut. These are these moments. And then the tattoos are another part of it. So much that I sort of, you know, so much that it seems like cosplay or, you know, kind of dress up party is a huge part of these, this identity formation, even in the weirdest groups. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and these were the conversations that I was having with my wife as we were watching, you know, this season of, of the vow, because, you know, almost every step of the way, I was like, you see, that's exactly what, you know, I can totally relate to that because I was going through the same types of emotions that people were. And what struck me the most was what Mark Vicente said at one point, he said, we didn't join a cult. None of us went in thinking we were joining a cult. We all went in thinking we were joining something good. And then we realized it was a cult. And once we did, it wasn't just walking away. It was a process of trying to figure out how do I now move my life forward with this as, you know, a part of me and and this baggage and things like that. So it's not as easy. So almost everything uh, and everything that you said, certainly from the, the kind of the uniforms that they wore and the scarves. I mean, we all look the same. We wore the same jackets, same boots, shaved our heads the same, wore the same patches on our jacket. We were a military. Where else does uniform, haircut, tattoos, and all those things represent that you belong to something? Where does it represent your identity, your community, and, and your purpose? We literally wore those things all three of those very important things on us uh, everywhere we went. You could see just by looking at us who we were, you could see that we all looked the same. That was our team, our community and our purpose. Literally we wore that on our sleeve, you know, oftentimes and, and, you know, through tattoos. So it was, it's always about this commitment, this price of admission. What are you willing to do to show your commitment? And Mm -hmm. you're always asked to do more. Uh, You're always asked to commit more, just like they were asked to give collateral uh, oh, yeah. to prove their commitment, which was, you know, kind of give them, you know, compromising photos of themselves or things that could be used against them if they ever broke away. It wasn't this exactly the same. We weren't asked to give that. We were asked to participate in things that we could not shake. We were asked to participate in violence. We were asked to participate in, you know, speeches and in rallies that could never be taken away from us. Those were our public uh, statements. Those were our depositions, so to speak. Right. You had, um, you were in a white power band mm-hmm. and the lyrics to those songs and the songs, the performances themselves can be replayed ad nauseum yeah. whenever anyone, you know, wants to take you to task. Yeah. And I can imagine when you were on the edge of leaving, thinking that that was going to be this like just terrible liminal place to be where mm-hmm. someone had that on you, like collateral. Yeah. like blackmail. 
And that was before the internet. And that's before the internet. Imagine right? what it's like now. Yeah. That you're just, you're just like, I, I just think of like Gulliver and Gulliver's travels, like tied down by every thread of you on social media so that you can't get up and move because someone will bring something back to haunt you. That was definitely true in the, in the Nexium drama. God, it was so, it, all of it was so unnerving. So let me ask you something about charismatic leaders. We've had Stephen Hassan on the show talking about Trumpism as a cult, and I'm persuaded. But your approach in Breaking Hate in the new book and in the work you've done over the last, what is it now, 25 years, has not been to use all the language of kind of cult speak and cult deprogramming. Mm -hmm. You talk about disengaging, not deprogramming, and it doesn't seem as though the worldview that you're trying to disengage people from is always has a charismatic leader or a you know a kind of multi-level marketing strategy to it. Is that true? I mean, do you think of the people you're dealing with as cultists or or is it something different? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting. So prior to Trump, I would say that there wasn't a charismatic leader for this type mm. of a movement. And nowadays, you know, I don't I don't know that I don't know that it's fair to say that Trump knows he's the leader of this white nationalist movement, um, but he, he is, uh, and he has become that to some degree. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I am working with people who are members of a cult, meaning that they have traded logic and reality for an idea that they uh, are gambling everything on that has really proven little to no evidence of it hmm. being you know, it's, it's not unlike, uh, you know, a religion to some degree where people are placing faith in something that they haven't tangibly, in, you know, most cases seen. So let me take a step back. It's the work that I do is hard because it, it's very one on one, right? I can't disengage people in a group environment. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. Nobody wants to, in that environment, be the first one to be, uh, you know, to break down, to be honest, to be vulnerable, or to even say that they're having doubts. So that's what's made it very difficult is the work is very one-to-one, -one, which means it's hard to scale. But here's the trick is every single one of us is a de-radicalizer. We all can offer help in fixing potholes or offering, you know, perspective into new identity, community, and purpose. In fact, we are the new community for a lot of these people, you know, on their way out, we can be the new community. I don't deprogram anybody because I very rarely, if any time at all, talk about ideology with them. I am a connector for them. I listen for those potholes and then I become a pothole fixer and I connect them to the people in their own community who can, you know, directly help repair those potholes. So I'm, I'm referring people to therapists, to, you know, mentors and counselors, life coaches, uh, job trainers, educators, and communities, I'm, I'm kind of leveraging, you know, existing communities, hobbyists, faith groups, gyms, sports teams, things like that, to really kind of shift the focus. I'm also not about believing people shouldn't be radical. Being a radical is not a bad thing. We've had radical thinkers throughout history, people like mm -hmm. Einstein and, and Dr. King, who thought out of the box. And at the time, people thought they were kind of nuts. And, yeah. and then we've come to find that, you know, they were just a little bit ahead of everybody else. And what I try and do is, is refocus the radical. I'm not trying to take that radical away from anybody because I know it can be refocused into something good, but it's up to them to really refocus it. I'm just kind of like traffic control, right? I'm a bridge builder. <laughs> you know, I use a lot of metaphors. I'm a bridge builder because I'm, I'm building bridges to like support that they need. Uh, I'm traffic control because I'm kind of guiding them back to that road of life once the potholes are fixed. And, you know, I'm a pothole repair person. That's, that's what I do. I do a lot of listening 
And I've built a network of, of people who can help. I am not a therapist, not a doctor, I'm not a guru, I'm not anything. I'm just an ex-skinhead who understands what it's like to be in those movements and, and knows what it's like to not have many options. So in many regards, I am that person that I wish would have come up to me in that alley when I was 14 years old instead of the skinhead who recruited me. Because had a coach or you know a joke, a group of ballerinas or a rock band or somebody come up to me and said, "Hey, kid, you want to come with yeah. us?" I would have gone with them, and maybe life would have been you know completely different. It just didn't happen. Stephen Hassan became a Mooney. I don't know if you know him, but in yeah. the '70s, yeah, he was approached by. Well, the thing is, if you think you were approached by ballerinas, that might have helped. He was approached by three very good-looking young women who seduced him or like honeypotted him into the arms of Reverend Moon. So it's not totally clear who the person is going to be that takes you down the wrong road. Um, totally. But the reason that this is this story seems to be sort of a microcosm, your story, a microcosm of what many of us are going through is that the country seems to have lost a chunk of its population to conspiracy thinking, to anger, to violent imaginings, to even stockpiling more guns, to flying Trump slash Confederate flags, to a, a very strange kind of thinking. Even just, you know, our Fox News grandfathers, you know, it's just strange to hear little bits of conspiracy theory come out of their mouths or like suddenly it's all, suddenly they know the word Burisma and CrowdStrike and then they know the words deep state and whatever. And you Marxist. just, you know, yeah, Marxist. It used to be that you could sort of see, oh, this person talking about the Nordic races has read the Turner Diaries. But now there's something new every minute. And it trickles up, trickles down, trickles out into the like very weird parts of the population. And so we're kind of constantly trying to imagine how to talk to Trumpites or how to help some Republicans make a graceful exit or make, a, make an exit that preserves their dignity. And I think when you say you don't confront them on ideology or even it doesn't seem like on facts, do you? Or do you? Because well, Hassan I, often starts with facts. You know, he, he'll say to a Jehovah's Witness, you know, do you know about this system of abuse? And uh, I'm not very good at that. Um, <laughs> but I do I, but I do like to make room for someone like a David Weissman, who was a Trump troll, to leave. Because we all are, you know, we're on the brink of an election. And, you know, with any luck, we'll be in a place where more people can leave because yeah. they'll have a, a White House representative who doesn't make being a white supremacist look as much fun as it was under Trump. And we want to make that transition without without a civil war, right? Yeah. So part of what I think you're trying to do and what the country is trying to do as a whole is, is somehow navigate that transition, make it very decisive, but not make it a rupture with everything that's come before. So I, I don't know, maybe you can speak to that. Yeah. So I'll address that, you know, that I really don't, it's not fair to say I don't use facts. I do when it's necessary, but I've always found that leading with, you know, argument or debate or even with those facts is not going to work against an illogical ideology, right? Because they are not using true facts. They are not using logic or, you know, their, their, you know, rational thinking to, to argue they're, they're using conspiracy theories and essentially fake news and, and, you know, fake facts to argue. So, what I try to do is make it very emotional. I make it so that they can feel the change, feel the confusion. Uh, and oftentimes I do that by putting them in situations that challenge what they believe. So I use facts in that sense. Um, you know, if it's somebody who doesn't like 
Jewish people, you know, when I think that they're ready, I'll introduce them to some and, and let them come to their own conclusion because the ones that they're going to meet are not, you know, secretly pulling the strings behind some, you know, global financial, uh, you know, cabal uh, like they believe, you know, is happening. But I also say, like, it's really interesting too. And what because, is the, what is sorry? What does that look like? You you just like say you know have a, like barbecue? Yeah. There's no pork involved, but yeah. <laughs> okay. And then say, this is my Jewish friend. And, and then the guy is slowly surprised that he's not a monster. Well, I, you know, first of all, I should say it, it doesn't happen for a while. It's not the first situation that I put them in. They have to be open to that. And I certainly don't ever want to put somebody, uh, you know, uh, somebody from uh, a community that could be hurt by these people in a, in a situation. Mm-hmm. It's not their responsibility to be nice to the people that are not nice to them. So they must be ready to do that. Uh, and when they are, you know, like we were talking about Brendan, he he's currently boxing uh, at a gym in Chicago that's run by an old anti-racist skinhead that I knew 30 years ago. And in this gym, it's mostly, you know, black and Latino guys who work out there. So he is, you know, months and months after we started working together in a place where he can now daily go to a gym and train, be trained by, you know, people who are black or trained next to people who are black and, and Latino and Jewish and gay and he's loving it and he's accepted by them and they know about his past. It was, you know, he, he had to be open with them. And the person who is mentoring him, the boxing trainer is an old anti-racist skinhead from Chicago from 30 years ago. So, you know, and, and I've, he's a friend of mine. I've known him for many, many years. So he's kind of like my surrogate. He's kind of the mentor in that situation. They never really go mentorless. Yeah. So he was in a position where he was ready to do that. And he, you know, he reports back to me every day. And, and so does my friend who's his trainer. And, and, they're making tremendous strides. He's making friends for the first time. He's now exposed to, to new people and, and, you know, sharing pretty intimate experiences where you're pretty vulnerable, sweating and, you know, out of breath in a boxing gym. Uh, so it, it, it actually worked out in that scenario. But I want to bring up something that I think is really important that you touched on is most people think it's young people becoming radicalized. And in the old days, I used to think that young people, 14, 15, were more susceptible because they're the ones who are on that search for identity, community, and purpose. They're breaking away from their families. But then I started to think, who else is just as susceptible to young people on a search for identity, community, and purpose? And that is newly retired people or people who are going through that stage in their life. Because uh, oftentimes they're moving you know, homes, they're going to a different state, retiring to a different community, they're making new friends, some of their friends have passed, they're you know, they're not working with the same people. They're retired now and they have a whole lifetime of potholes that they've not dealt with divorce and loss and grief and, you know, losing jobs and, you know, all sorts of things. So maybe that explains why. And by the way, they're living on Facebook, that, that age group, that demographic, like my parents are living on Facebook. And that is where a lot of this, you know, propaganda is coming. A lot of the, certainly the, you know, the election propaganda and they are now, I think, the largest demographic of people susceptible to being radicalized. And I think that we are seeing that. Yeah. And um, have you been brought in to help anyone or have you worked with any older person, senior citizens attempting to disengage? Yeah, I've seen uh, just a very recently a phenomenon of adult children, you know, people who are you know, in their 40s who are now reaching out to me about their parents who are QAnon, mm. you know, uh, followers and things like that. Yeah. So I'm starting to now work, uh, you know, on the more non-traditional type things. And I'm finding the same things. It, it's that search for identity, community, purpose, or there was, you know, a breakdown in it. And, and they're dealing with potholes. And I advise the same thing. It's about building human resilience, uh, about 
finding ways to connect on the things that are fundamentally important to all of us uh, and using that as a starting point. Because if we can start on the things that are important to all of us when we have a conversation, the fact that we want to be healthy, we want jobs, we want our kids to be healthy and safe and all that, and not let it delve into political stuff, eventually maybe we'll go off track, but we can come back to that point where we have connected. If we start out on opposite ends and just disagree with each other right off the bat, we never have that connection point. Yeah. And, and that connection point is important because you revisit it time and time again once you start going off track. And the more you revisit it, the more it grows, the more it grows, and the less opportunity you have to, to go off track. Do you think that Biden, just while you were saying that, and I can see you because we're on Zoom, there just a certain just gentleness came over you that makes me think of Biden. Just, mm-hmm. the you know, Biden is very kind of universal solvent of, of of human emotions you know he's suffered he's um he's old he we have no reason to question that he hasn't had his he, he doesn't come off like i am just winning at life every minute he's lost lots of people close to him and he's lost lots of elections and there's just something very human about him and my hope is that he can stand in that space for all the things we we have in common all the things we mortals have in common in mm-hmm. the world. Do you think that if we get through the election, if the even if the election is contested, and if he's the president, that that he might be the right person to have in place? He's certainly not very threatening to the far right. They have a hard time painting him as the demon they did with Hillary Clinton or Obama. Yeah, I mean, and they've had to resort to you know attacking family members and, and things like that to try and get to him. You know, I, I really do hope that, and I think that that Biden can be, uh, you know, the president, or at least, you know, maybe the four years where we find a way to start repairing the potholes, right? We're not going to fix everything in four years. We certainly aren't going to undo, you know, centuries of harm that people have endured in this country. Uh, we're, you know, but it's a start. Uh, and I think he potentially can be the most important president in our lifetime, whether he knows it or not, because he will be that that platform, or he can be that platform for so many things in the future to spring from. Right? Uh, he's not going to solve racism. He's not going to solve inequity. He's not going to solve you know the fact that we don't have health care for everybody. But I think it will start there, and I think that we'll see future administrations really kind of uh, to take off on things that have started during the Biden administration. I think he has to. I think it, it must happen, right? Yes. Uh, because all eyes are on him and, and we expect more now out of our presidents. Uh, and, and rightfully so, we should after what I think we've experienced. I really hope that you know on November 3rd, on my birthday, that uh, we get the results that so many of us are hoping for, that we have this chance to start fresh on this road to accomplish something that we I think can all agree on we've never accomplished. And that is this democracy that we live in. It is this beautiful vision that we have yet to see to fruition. And we've got a lot of work to get there for it to work for everybody. But I think that we have to start somewhere. And certainly it won't happen, I think, if with another four years of, of what we've got now. In fact, I don't know that we'll survive another four years of what we have now. Christian Picciolini is a former neo-Nazi and the author most recently of Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. Thank you so much for being here, Christian. This was really interesting. It's my pleasure, Virginia. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. What do you think? We want to hear from you. I'm at page 88 on Twitter. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And please 
give us a rating. Whichever app you use for podcasts, give us those five stars and a review. It all goes a long way for helping our show reach new audience and new voters, especially in this home stretch. And when you're finished with that, just join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and get this done today. All Plus members get every single one of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.